at the end of this year, we're going to actually demonstrate what we're talking about here, which is providing persistent ISR in blue water off a flat deck without having a super expensive carrier suitable aircraft. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Later in the program, Dave Alexander, the president of General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, on his take on the proliferation of unmanned systems on the battlefield and the future of ever more ambitious unmanned systems, including how to make the U.S. Air Force's collaborative combat aircraft effort a success, plus this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors the Defense and Aerospace Reports daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Vago, there's a whole lot of news and we're going to move pretty fast. When one door closes, another opens. Lockheed Martin decided they didn't want to bid after all on the bridge tanker or KCY or whatever we're calling the thing that comes after KC-46 this week. However, the A330MRTT tanker that was at the core of their bid is going to continue. Airbus is going it alone with that aircraft. That's a rerun for Airbus. If you'll remember back when they were bidding for KCX, they were teamed with Northrop Grumman. Then Northrop Grumman decided to get out and Airbus went alone. The B-21 has started taxi tests following the engine tests that we first heard about a couple of weeks ago. You can now take the world's most expensive Uber from one side of Palmdale Airport to the other. The first Ukrainian pilots have started training in the U.S. on F-16s at Morris Air National Guard Base outside Tucson, Arizona. And as they start flying F-16s, the U.S. sends F-16s to the CENTCOM AOR where things are getting hot. The 119th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron, the Jersey Devils out of Atlantic City, are over there now at an undisclosed location. Also heading across the ocean, four F-16s arrived at Keflavik in Iceland to do NATO air policing missions. Quick preview of something you're going to hear about on Sunday on the Business Roundtable. Boeing put out its quarterly earnings report, and among many other numbers that you'll hear about Sunday, they took a $482 million charge on the new Air Force One, the VC-25B. That's $482 million in one quarter. Execution continues to be a challenge for that two-aircraft program. Last week, we talked about the competition in the tactical air lift market with the C-390 beginning to make some inroads. Well, this week, the empire struck back as the Philippines announced a deal for three C-130Js. The Herc lives on. Lithuania wants AMRAMs. Now, that's unusual only because Lithuania does not have fighter aircraft to put AMRAMs on. These 36 units are going to be put into the NASAMS air defense system. You know, and just before we go, there are two other elements that I wanted to talk about. One is the long-running love affair between Lockheed and Airbus, right? I mean, these two have been discussing a partnership for decades, literally decades, and that has stalled several times at the altar. So this is just the latest iteration of that. And whoever is on the receiving end of the 119th just has to know that they're in deep trouble when the gang from Atlantic City is washing up in your neighborhood. 
This is the point of the program where normally we stop and discuss the headlines at some length. There's just so many of them this week. We're not going to do that. We're going to get right on to Dave Alexander. But hey, watch this space. We're working a couple of stories regarding some classified programs that may make some news here before too long. And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Meradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. And joining us now is Dave Alexander, the president of General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, one of the world's leading makers of unmanned systems. And of course, anybody who listens to our program, GASI sponsors our strategy coverage. Dave, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. And thank you, Vago. It's always a pleasure to uh, connect up with you and get the latest on your insight as well. We start this program generally, either JJ or I will ask folks, you know, some of the lessons uh, learned from operations in Ukraine and now, unfortunately, Israel's war on Hamas, you know, whether in Ukraine or the Hamas attack involved uh, a lot of unmanned systems and unmanned capabilities. As you look at the lessons from these conflicts, and now we're 21 months into the Ukraine war, what are some of the lessons that you and the team at General Atomics are looking at that you think are going to be shaping the future of the capability? there for the long haul right now. And so, you know, our idea is that, you know, an endurance platform that can keep eyes on the situation, give you a continuous ISR, is even going to be more and more important going forward. They're in a standoff mode right now. So I really think the a long endurance platform like the MQ-9, like what we've offered up to Ukraine and still are offering it, uh, we think will have great value in many areas. Um, base defense, uh, targeting, just, you know, overall situation awareness for the fighters. Let's follow up on that offer for a moment, because General Atomics had made an offer to the government of Ukraine, sort of separate from official U.S. military support. And recently yeah. that offer was revised. Can you talk about what it is you're offering them and how it's been received in Kiev? What we're offering, uh, and we're still offering, by the way, is uh, we have capital aircraft. We have a couple of MQ-9 capital aircraft that we offered up for a dollar, okay? It's the dollar's token. That's just, you know, the gesture of getting something over that we think is needed. We also offered up to train the Ukrainians on a system at our cost. And then just so they could try before they step into this, we offered up just recently also sustainment for half a year or so to get them up and rolling uh, to make sure you know that they would invest in something that maybe wouldn't be useful so we put all the costs on our side because we're so confident that once they get it in there that it'll really actually benefit the ukrainians dave let me follow up on that follow-up that jj just had right i mean there is a perception that the platform is uh, too vulnerable, that you know you can't use it in contested airspace, and yet we found the you know Ukrainians were able to use the Bayraktar, which is 
sort of where a predator was about 15, 20 years before where predator ended up. What are some of the lessons you're learning as you watch this conflict and how the capability can be used, even if it is in contested airspace? The lessons learned are tactics matter. And you can take a platform like MQ-9 or a lesser group three or four platform, and you can take tactics and survive. Just about any airplane is going to be at risk if you fly straight into you know your enemy's IADs. That makes no sense. So yeah, the tactics matter. Tactics can be standoff. The tactics can be fly low behind the curvature of the earth, pop up, do things, pop back down. There's a lot that can be done, even though you know that whole area is basically littered with uh, surface to air missile threats, and there's ways around it. And guess what? That's what you're seeing today out there right now. People figure out how to get around it. And uh, that's really what we see the value of what we've been proposing is we could actually do a lot of really good targeting with some of these tactics uh, at a long range. One of the things we're seeing in both of these conflicts is widespread use of very small commercially available UAVs. Is there a place for GA in connecting between your platforms and systems like that or in developing control systems to manage swarms of these smaller aircraft? Is that where the future of UAVs lies? If the small, say, were carried at long distances, the larger unmanned aircraft, like an MQ-9, could carry smaller unmanned aircraft and air launch them into these areas. The persistence of a platform like MQ-9 could do a lot of targeting for these smalls that are even ground launched, uh, for that matter. So, yeah, there's a a lot of good synergies between the two. And, you know, one of our multi-domain operation initiatives that we got going for the system really does require that whole nested large UAV, small UAV, and you control the small guy through the larger unmanned aircraft that has over the horizon reach. And there's just a lot you can do with that. Again, it all comes down to these tactics and not just flying straight into enemy air defense. Yeah, of course, just about every fighter jet will have a problem with that as well. At AFA, we had a chance to talk, and obviously one of the biggest focus items there was the collaborative combat aircraft that the U.S. Air Force is trying to develop for a multiplicity of different missions, whether from an air-to-air standpoint, an air-to-ground standpoint, surveillance, reconnaissance, electronic warfare. You guys have been working behind the scenes for about a decade or more to sort of shape what that looks like, and certain elements of it do look like the Avenger, for example, which is uh, the jet-powered child of Predator that has seen a lot of operational success uh, as well, even if on a highly classified basis. And you guys also unveiled your kind of gambit approach, which is a common core and a very elegant common core. It is at that. But what's your guys' sense on architecturally what this CCA environment looks like? You guys developed the Sparrowhawk that can be deployed and recovered from, you know, unmanned aircraft, whether a Reaper or or any other platform. What is your sense at this point and the conversations you guys are having and where you think the Air Force is on what this CCA architecture ends up looking like? Just going back to the Gambit series and really going back to the beginnings of General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. If you look at our platforms today, like MQ-1C Gray Eagle, you look at MQ-9 Alpha, MQ-9 Bravo, you look at MQ-20. Once you go inside the aircraft systems level, 
there's a lot of commonality on our platforms that is shared. And that's what's allowed us to move quick, move into new customers, move into new missions, and um, expand our capabilities by this commonality. And Gambit's really the same thing. It just takes it one step further. And now we're not only sharing those systems, but we are sharing things like undercarriage, landing gear. We're sharing propulsion and fuel systems, primary structure, so that now we can reconfigure these combat aircraft in a much quicker sense than we had in the past, where perhaps you might be swapping out whole propulsion systems, say, from going to a turboprop to a, a turbofan-type aircraft. This is not new to us, but it's just this gambit is the next level that I think is going to be a game changer for the U.S. Air Force in the ways that you can be a shooter, you can be a sensor, you can do red air, you know, you reconfigure the aircraft. In some cases, you need to have slightly different shapes of the fuselage and the primary structure underneath doesn't change. And you can take on these new missions without doing a complete new start which is what's killing the industry now. right now, is just all these new starts. I really think um, that's going to be a big benefit to the unmanned combat systems that for moving forward, just because you can move from mission to mission to mission and not necessarily have a new start. Now, in parallel with that, we've been working this thing called long shot. It's kind of in the same family, if you will. Now, a long shot can either be ground launched or air launched, but it does, you know, that same mission at a long distance that these combat aircraft do with much less logistics trail to it. So it's not an aircraft that takes off and comes back and lands and requires runways and all these other things. So the combo between long shot and the Gambit series, I think, is really going to be a powerful combo such that I could see scenarios where they um, actually play together in a combat mission. Maybe long shots go in first and gambit unmanned aircraft come in afterwards. Okay, let's break that down, though, for a moment, because I know that Vago is itching to ask you about long shot. But for the folks who weren't at AFA, where competitors were displaying all kinds of different shapes and sizes of UAV, let's explain just a little bit about how gambit works, because... Essentially, you've got the ability with one platform to present a whole number of different shapes, sizes, missions. What is the core? What are the options? How would you describe Gambit to somebody who had never seen one? Well, let's say um, one of the Gambits is an air-to-air combat aircraft that you want to fly fast, right? So to fly fast, it changes the shape of the aircraft. It changes the sweep of the wings. It can change maybe the radar cross-section of how you'd want to shape it. And then maybe the next series is, you know, we don't need that speed. We need to point design into a sensing station that has speed, but not as quite as fast as say a unmanned combat aircraft that's shooting air-to-air missiles. The wings are different. You got a different airfoil. They're a different wing sweep. Here, you're not worrying as much, say, on the cross-section of the platform. These kind of things, I think, are what can be easily swapped out without having a whole new restart. You know, it's on the production line, and you can build both airplanes basically with the same set of qualification. So really, that's powerful to be able to reconfigure and move forward as needed. And it may turn out 
once you really get into uh, into the situation, maybe your the quantity of sensing versus shooting needs to be different. So you build more sensors rather than shooter aircraft. So it's that flexibility moving forward mm-hmm. uh, towards the missions. What's common from one to the next? What do you carry over? What makes this easier to either build or deploy and operate? Complicated things like the whole undercarriage, you know, the landing gear. This that's just highly integrated into, in, into any aircraft. So if you can hang on to the undercarriage, you can hang on to the primary structure, you can hang on to propulsion and the fuel system. That's basically the heart of the air- aircraft. After that, it's just plug and play sensor systems. You know, either it's a shooter or it's got special sensors for creating uh, airborne tracks. And so each one can be configured for the payloads that are needed or the weapons that are needed going forward. But the big savings would be that primary structure, the undercarriage, propulsion, and the, I would say, the airworthy set of avionics that drive the command and control and drive the communications you know, all that can remain the same. So huge savings going forward. One of the things which I thought was most elegant is the sort of that four-part central frame that you guys have that's 3D printed and serves as the sort of the cradle for the engine and some of the controls and the, the central core of the airplane, which I thought was a very elegant way of executing it. Let me take you to Longshot. You guys are developing that as an unmanned weapons firing air vehicle for DARPA. It is going to flight testing next year. Bring us up to speed on where that program stands, because you guys have sort of a vast array of company-funded or DARPA-funded or Air Force-funded efforts that are going on simultaneously. That's coming along quite nicely, the Longshot program, and uh, we're funded up through flight tests. And the team is making excellent progress. It's a very difficult problem set because, you know, you're carrying missiles that are a pretty large mass fraction of the long shot vehicle. So for something to fly out a long distance and be able to shoot missiles um, that are, by the time you get there, a very, very large fraction of your long shot weight, I think it's got the engineers busy on how they're going to figure out to do that and keep the aircraft stable. But like I said earlier, it provides a very straightforward capability that can be brought to bear quickly. And uh, I really think it's got a lot of synergies with the, the UCAP mission. We've talked about ground-launched aircraft. We've talked about air-launched aircraft. But there's a revolution coming in sea launch. Turkey has already launched what's said to be the first aircraft carrier for UAVs. The UK is talking about operating UAVs off their two big deck carriers. And they've been looking at the General Atomics Mojave for future operations. Let's talk about that program. Where is Mojave right now, the short takeoff and landing variant of the Predator? And where do you think it's going in the short term? Well, uh, just a little background on Mojave. The aircraft that we are flying today is a derivative of the Great Eagle aircraft. We removed the low drag, high aspect ratio wings and basically put what looks like uh, crop tester wings, but very boxy. <laughs> it looks like it has a purpose. Let's just say that. But it's very boxy, uh, high lift wings with leading edge slats and double slotted flaps. And what those do is they actuate into place to create a very high lift, uh, lifting wing. 
And so that's what's flying today. Uh, it's a demonstrator. You could fly this as a Mojave Army mission, or you could take this same concept of the high lift wings and replace the wings on MQ-9 Bravo to uh, create the same solution. Now, what's happened recently is we were demonstrating Mojave's, you know, runway independence by taking off and landing on dirt roads and, and such with the flotation tires. Mm-hmm. And it's really got a lot of interest from navies around the world that have flat decks that don't have uh, catapults and arrested, you know, landing gear cables laying on there that need ISR in the blue water. And so we're looking at this option of the same high lift wing and tail kit that would just be uh, retrofitted onto existing MQ-9 Bravo Sky Guardians. So it's really got a lot of tension and uh, with just not that much forward speed from the flat deck ship, we can take off and land just like we can from land. So I don't have to design an aircraft carrier suitable aircraft. This is a basic land-based aircraft that deck runs off these uh, naval operations. Now, we just signed a contract with the Royal Navy to deck run Mojave off of the Prince of Wales this year. So we're pretty excited about that. Our teams are out there uh, practicing takeoff and landings, getting ready to go do it. But at the end of this year, we're going to actually demonstrate what we're talking about here, which is providing persistent ISR in blue water off a flat deck without having a super expensive carrier suitable aircraft. So that's that's uh, getting a lot of attention right now. And anyway, we hope to have some really good footage here before the end of the year of Mojave off the Prince of Wales. Dave, that's for obviously a foreign operator that's interested in broadening the unmanned capability that would come off of big deck British carriers. The U.S. Marine Corps is interested in, in the Mojave capability. There are some in the Army who are interested in it. Walk us through where potential U.S. customers for this are, because this system can also carry all of the payloads that you guys have, you know, whether for anti-submarine purposes or strike purposes or surveillance. And how are you modifying the Mojave based on what it is that you're hearing from the services that might be interested in it? Let me just start with the U.S. Army. The Mojave idea was originally to answer runway independence for them. And, you know, we got really hung up with vertical takeoff and landing and and how that ruined uh, the persistence and endurance of the platform. That's where Mojave started, which is semi-improved, dirt road, takeoff and landings. You can uh, load it up with a large amount of Hellfire missiles, or you can uh, actually, we're looking at contested cargo, if you will. So a cargo pod underneath each wing, and now you can bring in supplies to some troops that are downrange. So that's getting a lot of attention right now. You know, our plan is to keep pushing and keep marketing this concept with the U.S. Army. They, they've got a lot of decisions to make right now on other platforms that they're working on. And we really think this provides a nice um, alternative to what they've been looking at. Basically, it gives you runway independence and long endurance with a high useful load that either can be weapons for armed overwatch or it could be a thousand pounds of uh, downrange cargo for people that need ammunition or food or whatever's needed. This aircraft could pop back and forth and not rely on runway. So 
I think there's a place in the army. You know, I, I don't want to be get ahead of myself by saying too much, but we're going to next year, if you're at maybe one of the army shows, you might just see this airplane there. The real attention it got was when we started about deck running. And then that's when uh, we switched to the idea of, well, this is a good idea for Sky Guardian as well. You could take a Sky Guardian MK9 Bravo as is, and you could have a Mojave-like short takeoff and landing wing kit. And you could swap back and forth. It uses the same propulsion system and everything. You're just changing out wings and tails. And we really think that flexibility and modularity of Hey, one day it's a super long endurance, uh, you know, higher altitude ISR platform. And now you can swap out wings and tails and go deck run, you know, off an amphib. So I think the Marine Corps could see a lot of use in that as well. And one other portion of the U.S. government that may be interested, Special Operations Command. You're doing some interesting experiments with them. So AFSOC, you know, being very... um, I would say forward thinking and visionary is looking at where do they go next, you know, with their long endurance uh, MQ-9 platforms. You know, I would say General Slife started this off. He had great vision. And he coined this term adaptive airborne enterprise, A2E. That's his vision of this whole building block of nested solutions like MQ-9B Bravo, launch and smalls in this multi-domain operations where, you know, the larger aircraft stands off and the smaller aircraft go in and penetrate enemy air defense and just be able to build and play and have many solutions using these uh, unmanned, unmanned solutions, if you will, towards a unique set of problems. So there's plenty of fighter aircraft out there that can perform the penetrating mission, but this one can do the steady state, the phase zero, fly every day, launch deep, look what's going on. So I think that vision is playing out now. So what happened is uh, AFSOC procured three MQ-9 Bravos. We're currently working with them to do experimentation on multi-aircraft control. We're going into new ground segment. So we don't have our standard ground control station. We actually have a different ground segment that we're working with. And then we'll be uh, also this year launching some smalls off of their airplanes. So right now it's it's just a building block to get into experimentation. Large unmanned aircraft launching smaller unmanned aircraft. The two of them working together into a kind of a meshed operation, and um, you know revamping the ground segment into more of a agile combat employment type of operation. So they're purposely going in and doing experimentation and learning as they go to basically build up this A2E vision that General Slife had. And before we slide too far away from the U.S. government, you were just talking about the different sizes of aircraft and a DOD initiative that has come up recently from Deputy Secretary Kathleen Hicks is Replicator a way of trying to produce mass numbers of UAVs of different sizes. What's the right way to formulate that program so that it is a success? We're all about leaning forward and going quick. And, you know, in some ways, I think the speed to ramp and speed to mass that the UCAP program that the Air Force is trying to do is somewhat the same. 
I will say this multi-domain operations where you have I mean, the longer endurance platform launching the smalls and then replicating the smalls, we are working on actually building complete small unmanned aircraft using additive manufacturing. So we're actually printing the whole unmanned aircraft through printing. And uh, with that kind of approach, you can get into thousands. So no easier way to replicate than print. So yeah, those are some areas that we really think have got big promise, especially in the smalls. But what's the trick, Dave, to doing this? Because it appears that what Dr. Hicks wants is, you know, quote, non-traditional suppliers also to be able to produce stuff en masse, right? What's the right way to do that? And how would, for example, uh, General Atomics work, right? I mean, the Jet Zero contract was interesting in that the Air Force gave a smaller company the prime contractorship, uh, right? Historically, it would be the big guy who can produce, you know, Northrop would be the prime, whereas in this case, Jet Zero is the prime, Northrop's on its team. How would you structure this if, for example, General Atomics is the prime, but then a non-traditional mass production company, whether it's an automaker, whether it's a General Motors or a Ford or what have you, gets involved in in sort of doing production in quantity? What's the way to ensure a relationship like that becomes successful? Well, you got to build a partnership. Um, We've done that with this additive manufacturing that I was mentioning before. This was a company that spent most of its uh, energy into the uh, automotive industry mm-hmm. and uh, just, you know, through some creative people and working together as, you know, as a team, we were able to bring them into the aerospace world. And I think it's uh, those kind of things where you can get somebody from a different industry to leap over uh, into aerospace. You know, automotive's got a lot to provide. So anyway, we're taking advantage of that right now, especially in the additive manufacturing and uh, robot assembly area, which, you know, automotive is really the leaders in. Let me ask one last question, and it's about export controls. The United States continues to deny exports to some allies and partners, particularly in the Gulf, who wanted this capability. But this has also been a challenge, even with allies like Britain and France, who had to wait for some time to get the capability. Washington has a tendency of looking at the Predator as a long-range weapon. And so there are missile technology control regime questions that end up getting raised And some of this is reminiscent to what happened to the U.S. space industry. Unfortunately, technology that improved Chinese ballistic missiles, you know, got to China. But the response was that we almost killed our satellite industry uh, as a a consequence of this. When we deny this capability to our allies and partners, they go to China and other places in order to get the capability. What's the right balance here where, you know, obviously the United States might have legitimate questions and concerns. On the other hand, you know, what, what is it ultimately you're achieving if they can acquire that capability from somebody else other than the United States, right? I mean, I, I know you're kind of caught in the middle of this. What's the most constructive way forward that balances those export control concerns with the reality that folks can get this capability somewhere else and it potentially has nefarious implications in terms of feeds going back to China, for example? Not to get too hung up on history, but 
history is going to show that MTCR gave away the unmanned aircraft industry to our, our enemies, in my opinion. MTCR held us back for many, many years, and all that did was open the door up to everybody else. A country can have an F-16 loaded with every weapon known to man, but they can't have a turboprop unmanned aircraft, you know, with weapons. I mean, it makes no sense. And so those years of all that really gave away the market. Um, now, a lot of that's been corrected with export policy, and they're still trying to, you know, jigger the MTCR with some new requirements on airspeed, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, I don't know, in my mind, the damage has been done, and it's too late to undo it. So what, what we have to sell now is interoperability, I think. Uh, we have to show that, yes, you can go buy a cheaper system from state-owned companies in China and state-owned companies in Israel and Turkey, but what you get coming with us is, you know, the interoperability with, you know, the U.S. services. That's about what we have left right now because um, we've allowed time to all for all those countries I just mentioned to get up to speed. You know, they're moving quick, and within 10 years, they, they're catching up, and we just gave it away. So we really got to hang our hat on interoperability to get our foot back in the door. And I do think that our allies and partners are still holding that they do see a big benefit with the interoperability. So that's what we're hanging on right now, to be honest. And then all these countries that don't care about that, they're going to go buy these systems from China and Israel and Turkey and you name it. Let me just follow up on that, though. So how is it we do interoperability with folks who have acquired Chinese systems, ultimately? How do we do that? Well, we don't do that. We stay away from Chinese. But let's say a, a government wants to come to us and have interoperability through Link 16 or interoperability through right. common weapon, those kind of things. If it's a country that doesn't care about that, they can go buy uh, these platforms from those countries I mentioned. So do you think that it's really unrecoverable at this point? We missed some big opportunities. And I would say about 2010 and on, Okay. Big opportunities were missed. So what's left now are, you know, the, the few countries that have been patient, you know, the way around. But there's other countries that could have bought big numbers that won't. How big? 300 airplanes in one country. Easy. Without those restrictions that we had, I think KSA would have 300 of our airplanes. Without those restrictions... UAE would have 150 of our airplanes. Easy. That could have happened. But that's what's been missed. And you don't just miss the acquisition, okay? Acquisition's a third of the total ownership cost. What you miss is the 30 years of support that goes with it. And then when somebody else gets in, guess what? They're in there for 30 years themselves. So, you know, it's going to be... 2050 before we get another chance to get in in some of these countries. But it's fascinating, too, how you said it, because you said 300 airplanes, and that's how you think about it. That's how a lot of countries think about it. For whatever reason, the U.S. thinks about it as missiles, 
And it's just looking at the same airframe and describing it completely differently. Yeah. These countries I'm talking about have airplanes with weapons on them that came from the U.S. Okay. Way more capable than an MQ-9. Way more. Whether you call them uninhabited, uncrewed, remotely piloted, or whatever, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems is a leader in the field. Dave Alexander, thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Air Power Podcast, and be sure to tell your friends. A special thanks to GE Aerospace for their generous support. We'll be back next week.